Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. With ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time, which goes until 6pm tonight. My name's Jan Bartlett. Today, threats to important rainforests in Ecuador. I'll be speaking with John Seed, the founder of the Rainforest Information Centre service in northern northern New South Wales. John Bolton has now got a, a pretty important position Behind John, not John, Mr. Trump. Joan Coxage, political activist and social activist, will be telling us all about this, many people say, pretty horrible man, and also some of the others that um, Mr. Trump has appointed to his cabinet and got rid of as well. Threats to rights to advocate for justice and human rights with a new bill going through Parliament Federal Parliament. Cam Walker knows all about it. He's the campaign director with Friends of the Earth. And a talk by Chris Gaffney, who we've just been hearing, activist and broadcaster. And this one is the rise of fascism, talking about um, late 19th century, early 20th century. And an update on the situation in Syria and Palestine with Dr. Tim Anderson. But first... Mr Kevin Healy, he's had another week. A week, Jane, listener, when deja vu. Twenty years after the attempt by Chris Lye again and Pat Tricks, the workers, to lift this country out of the doldrums by lifting productivity on the wharves, with the help of a few dogs, the canine kind, and a lot of dogs, the human kind, although that's the unfair to dogs. Sorry, dogs. Humankind trained in Dubai to do an unfair day's work for, and balaclavas and former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Peter Root, the workers, and the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in those dark ages, attempt to bring industrial relations into the 18th century, it's on again. Lazy, avaricious workers that Club the Workers' stevedores were on strike this weekend because Club the Workers has been forced by the evil, evil union to seek to terminate the agreement thanks to the unpatriotic workers refusing to accept a few necessary productivity improvements like sacrificing wages and conditions. Forced to terminate, and that would mean wage cuts of up to 60%, showing just how avaricious and overpaid these workers are, crippling poor Club the Workers, which knows they can live on 60% less, and Club the Workers can happily survive on just 60% more. And the deja vu doesn't just end there. The realisation that even more productivity was essential was made when Club the Workers was taken over by, yep, 
good old Chris lie again. And the evil union is being so recalcitrant, poor Chris was forced to come out last week and criticise the caring business class government for not having the courage. Governments were terrified, he said, not having the courage, terrified, to introduce the vital caring business class relations and productivity improvements reforms this country so desperately needs to stop it grinding along under the boots of evil union viscosity. Oh, deja vu, here we go again. And cold behemoth, Glen rotten to the core, following an eight-month lockout of its lazy, avaricious workers, replacing them with good workers who just want to go to work, we can't call them scabs because calling people scabs is now illegal, following, because locking workers out is, is legal, unlike strikes, which are criminal, forcing the evil locked-out workers back by threatening to take everything off them, now says the industrial relations laws are too loaded toward unions and workers, and has told big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull and the team they must change the law to make it fairer for the caring business class. So an example of balance would be making you locking them out illegal or conversely making strikes by them legal. We ask Glenn Rotten to the core. Can't repeat their answer, listener, but it's fair to say it seems that wasn't what it had in mind. Big meeting advertised for last Wednesday, chance for us to hear one of the Cuban Five, the Cubans who went to the US of the UN of the US of the world to investigate assassinations and the shooting down of a Cuban passenger jet and other crimes emanating from the US, primarily from Miami, but ending up doing 20 years or so in US prisons for the heinous crime of being Cuban and suggesting the good old US was conducting clandestine terror terrorist crimes against Cuba, as if. Just a pity that late change to arrangements, as the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, part of his important role of protecting us from terrorism, refused to let him into the country, denied him a visa. The US of, you know, like, ordered me to, oh, sorry, uh, alerted me to the danger, because, like, you know, he's Cuban. So I know, like, you know, he was a, like, terrorist anyway. Got a feeling Pete missed an opportunity to let him get here, then immediately swoop at the airport and transfer him to life imprisonment on Nauru or Manus. We don't need this, like, comma, you know, propaganda. We need educational speakers like, you know, like, persecuted South apartheid white farmers. Different if they were the, you know, like, South Apartheid Five. <laughs> he laughed, displaying a razor-sharp, you know, like, wit. Well, Constable Dutton was in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land, <coughs> uh, sorry, a copper, so he'd appreciate how the sensitivity training our forces of law and order undergo is working a treat. How to treat a person with major psychiatric illness. Drag the person out onto the lawn, severe, several beefy brains jump on, the, on her him, spray her him with capsicum directly into her his eyes while she he is lying under all these beefy coppers, punch and batten the proverbial out of her him, deliver a kick or two just for fun, then show sensitivity and compassion by hosing her him down. 
Lesson 2. If the subject is a person of African brackets black appearance, sensitively drag her him out and bash the proverbial out of her him. Bit of batten and sharp boots practice. Lesson 3. If the person is of true blue Aussie black appearance, slam her him into the nearest wall. The important point here? Because some black armband goody-goodies are suggesting the police actions in these cases may have been just a little extreme, a touch over the top, is that the totally independent, totally neutral Caesar rendering under Caesar Complaints Committee looked at these incidents and declared the proud forces of law and order acted most reasonably. And the BP Brains Union agreed and said the BP Brains had, had acted with restraint, exercising the sensitivities of their training, and that is a good, good union, nothing evil about it. Although the Caesar Rendry unto lot has decided a review might be in order, thanks to the goody-goody black armband lot releasing these bloody photos. We asked our police spokesperson, Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig, to comment on silly allegations of police violence. Oh, uh, you know, like, like, you know, like, you know. Thank you, Senior Sergeant O'Pig, lucid as ever. One of the Monash group, named after a big train killer, former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, was pedal powering past the Hazelwood Power Station Monday as Malcolm equaled Tiny's proud record of 30 pole losses in a row. Just one more to steal Tiny's proud record. But, just in case people think there's some preconceived plot here, government members have assured us the juxtapositioning was a pure coincidence, as pure as the clean, clean coal the Monash lot know must be in the energy mix. And we knew Tiny would respond to the dribbling, orgasmic, thrusting excitement of the media throng descending on Gippsland with a no comment to every question, because he promised he wouldn't wreck, undermine, snipe, be disloyal to Malcolm and the government. And Tiny, why do you call it a forum? Well, obviously because we're, um, a forum coal. <laughs> Very ordinary joke there, listener. Anyway, Malcolm pointed out there was a significant difference between Tiny dropping 30 in a row and Malcolm dropping 30 in a row. Let me assure you, Malcolm has no intention of challenging Malcolm. Another Monash alumni, Erica Betts on the bosses, provided the theological argument for coal being in the mix at, say, a finely balanced 98 to 100%. Almighty God and the dear baby Jesus, who is Almighty God, gave us coal. So the long-haired, commie, greenie campaign against coal is no more or less an atheistic plot to reject God's gift, an atheistic plot against religious freedom. And we might add on a positive note, clean, clean, balanced coal in the mix will allow the whole world to join the dear baby lot sooner than waiting for natural causes to do the trick. Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist in his typical in-depth political analysis yesterday talked about the left being opposed to Tiny. So far, so good. Except the left, he told us, was the left of the caring business class party. The left, and the most left of the loony, caring business class left, 
Malcolm himself. According to the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, the Monash lot list Malcolm's stand on renewable energy, refugees and the Republic as examples of his out-of-control leftism. And we can all see the results of Malcolm's out-of-control stand on renewable energy and refugees and the Republic. Although, given that, uh, that what, what was Prince Big Ears doing here this week? No, seriously, imagine what those policies would be like if he wasn't out of control. Speaking of out of control, mention Constable Duffer banned the Cuban Five comrade in his role as our protector. But the question must be, who have we got to protect us from Constable Duffer? While being patriotic, as a by-the-by, the Stalin Wolf games remind me of that Seinfeld episode in which Kramer is going to karate school and it turns out he's beating up on all these little kids. We smashed PNG! We smashed Cyprus! We smashed Samoa! True Blue Aussie! Gold! 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 Now, finally, a multi-choice little quiz listener. Tough choice, but who said life was meant to be easy? Okay, we're listening to the ABC Radio National Becky Show, and that in-depth interviewer, Fran, says, after 7.30, we'll be talking to Julie Bash Up the Workers, or talking to Matthias Rotten or Scuttle Them More Lash Son, or Christopher Payne in that, or Chris Bow into Capital, or, well, we get the picture. Do we immediately, A, switch to 3CR Becky, B, switch to 3CR Brecky, or C, switch to 3CR Brecky. Answer next week. And warning, there's only one correct answer. Good afternoon. I don't think you have to wait till next week for that one, Kevin. That's Mr Kevin Healy. A man who likes to talk about the past week. And then he's in the future for tomorrow between 9 and 10 with his program City Limits. Now, there's a film on Thursday, Thursday week, the 19th of April at 7.30pm at the Faulkner Primary School, which is the corner of Lawn Street and McBride Street in Faulkner. The film is The Green Chain, which is about a sawmill worker in New Zealand who took on the sawmillers because of ill health of many of his co-workers in the community. And there's also a guest speaker, Sebastian Furness, biochemist. And it's all about raising funds for Toxic Free Faulkner, the group fighting to get rid of the poisons at McBride Street in Faulkner. They've got to go to VCAT. And as we were told last week by Harry Van Morst, it costs a lot of money now to go to VCAT. So if you can be around on Thursday the 19th of April, which is Thursday week, 7.30pm, the Faulkner Primary School, Corner Lawn and McBride Streets in Faulkner. If you'd like to know more, ring Sue on 0413 377 978. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. 
3CR supporter. The Los Cedros Rainforest in Ecuador is one of the most biologically diverse and endemic habitats on planet Earth, and it's under threat from mining. It consists of 17,000 acres of premontane wet tropical enclave forest in northwestern Ecuador. A dedicated group of forest activists has managed and protected the biological reserve for the last 29 years and counting. And Australian environmentalist John Seath from the Rainforest Information Centre in northern New South Wales has also been involved in protecting the area for many decades. But we begin with John's journey. You know, it felt more like the rainforest picked me. I, I wasn't an environmentalist at the time. I just happened to find myself sucked into what we later learned was the first direct action in defence of rainforests, not only in Australia but anywhere in the world. And I was just there because it was like a few K down the road from where I'd been living in community, starting a meditation centre and living a totally different life. But somehow uh, that rainforest at Terrania Creek in what's now the Nightcap National Park consumed me and my enthusiasm uh, you know, for that rainforest and uh, all the rainforests has been continued uh, ever since then. And how does that fit in with deep ecology? Well, I mean, I suppose it led to the deep ecology. I, I only became aware of deep ecology some years later when I first stumbled upon deep ecology just as accidentally as I'd stumbled into the rainforest, it immediately rang true because it was the very experience that the rainforest had given me, you know, so that uh, it was as if it was something that I'd known uh, always. And, uh, and that too has remained with me. Um, uh, you know, my enthusiasm for deep ecology likewise has uh, continued to this day. Can you explain it a bit more? Well, deep ecology is a philosophy of nature. The, the term was coined by the late Arnie Ness, uh, uh, who was then Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Oslo University. And he claimed that uh, underlying all of the symptoms of the environmental crisis, there was a deeper issue, uh, which was a, a psychological or a spiritual matter and had to do with the illusion of separation between human beings and the rest of the natural world. The illusion of separation, uh, the idea uh, going way back uh, at least as far as the Old Testament that uh, we humans are the crown of creation, the measure of all being and uh, far from experiencing ourselves, we modern people, far from experiencing ourselves as uh, just one strand in the vast web of life we feel as though we're the spider in the middle and that the whole thing is there just uh, to support us and just as a, a resource for our little lives. Tell us about the importance of rainforests. What is it? My own passion for rainforests preceded my uh, understanding of the um, ecological role that they play. But uh, in the meantime, I've learned uh, that the rainforests are the very womb of life. They're home to more than half of the 10 million species of plants and animals in the world and uh, satellite photographs them, show them continuing to erode and uh, with them um, uh, we're experiencing uh, the sixth extinction spasm since uh, life began on this planet taking place within our own lives and largely taking place within um, the rainforests as, uh, as species. 
species disappear at a tremendous rate, perhaps hundreds of species being lost every day. And obviously there could be species there we don't even know about yet. Oh, there, there's, without a doubt there are species we don't know about. The, the particular forest that I'm um, campaigning for at the moment, uh, the Los Cedros Biological Reserve in Ecuador, which we helped to create uh, more than 30 years ago, uh, new species are being discovered in this little area, 7,000 hectares, regularly. And uh, there's a National Geographic expedition going there in December this year, which will find probably scores of new species in that one place. When you say rainforests are being eroded, how? Oh, well, I mean, uh, logging, um, colonisation. In Ecuador, the big uh, threat at the moment is mining, that the um, uh, previous government uh, corruptly handed over, corruptly and uh, secretly handed over mining concessions covering 14% of that country to um, multinational mining companies including BHP and other Australian companies and uh, we're trying to um, see if we can turn that around and, and have those uh, concessions rescinded at the moment. What part of Ecuador is this? The Los Cedros Biological Reserve is in uh, northwestern Ecuador on the you know at slope of, of the Andes Mountains but the um, uh, areas that have been handed over to mining concessions, the larger campaign that uh, we're working on uh, covers much of Ecuador um, uh, from the uh, Andes right down to the Amazon from the Colombian border uh, to the very uh, far south of the country. Has there been mining or other concessions in that area before? There has and especially there's been uh, a lot of oil exploration and oil drilling um, and pollution in that area but the the amount of metal mining they're looking now for copper and gold has been quite minimal in the past and so this is going to be a huge change if it's uh, if, if it's allowed to happen. Are there particular animals, plants, insects in this area that you won't find in other areas? Oh, yeah, it's one of the most biodiverse areas, possibly the most biodiverse area in the world. There are more species of uh, hummingbirds in this tiny little country than there is in the entire, uh, in the whole of Brazil. And there, there are more species of, uh, of plants and animals in Ecuador than there are in the whole of North America. Why? Good question. I mean, uh, rainforests. Uh, you know, especially tropical rainforests are the most diverse and uh, densely speciated ecological type in the world. Why Ecuador? I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. What about the local people, the indigenous people of the area? How are they faring? These uh, mining, con you know, we discovered that uh, a mining concession had been handed to uh, a Canadian mining company, Cornerstone Resources, over Los Cedros. And we were stunned because it's a protected area. So as we explored it and examined it further, hired some people, you know, uh, activists in Ecuador to research for us, we discovered it was just the tip of this huge iceberg and that our 7,000 uh, hectare reserve was only one of 40 such protected forests totaling three quarters of a million hectares that had been conceded to the mining companies and also a million hectares of indigenous territory had been handed over without any consultation with those indigenous people and so two indigenous nations are particularly threatened uh, the Awa up uh, in the Andes on the Colombian border and the Shuar uh, down um, 
on the uh, in, deep in the Amazon. So uh, we're working alongside the uh, both those communities and the um, uh, confederation of indigenous communities uh, to uh, try and uh, turn this around if we can. So this would be their sacred or their cultural areas that are under threat. Yeah, this is where they have lived since time immemorial, since before there was any thought of a country called Ecuador. Now talk about the previous government. Was that the government that said that we were going to look after the environment? Yes, it was. It was the government that, you know, as a result of a huge uprising of Indigenous people uh, earlier, created a new constitution with the rights of nature uh, enshrined in the constitution the first time that this has happened in the world and to huge fanfare and acclaim from around the world. However, the, the vice president of that uh, government, a man called Glass, who was jailed for six years earlier this year for corruption, was in charge of the office that handed out these concessions. And so the present government, we have a lot more confidence in. However, they're between a rock and a hard place because these uh, mining companies have, you know, are boasting that they expect to have $6 billion of investment in um, you know, developing these mines in Ecuador in the next two or three years. And so you can imagine what they're thinking about in profits, and they're obviously not going to let go of this lightly. And you know, uh, the concessions have been signed, and so it's going to be very, very difficult for the government to be able to do anything unless there's a huge mandate from the uh, people of Ecuador. You know, so we are working with civil society in Ecuador to uh, help to just spread awareness about what's going on and to um, you know, let people know that they have a choice, that there are countries which have said no to the mining companies like Costa Rica allows no mining whatsoever but has better uh, economic indicators than Ecuador has as a result because this, uh, uh, the mining companies uh, don't leave much uh, once they've uh, moved uh, their profits to tax havens uh, and so on and so on. Especially the mess that they leave behind. Well, the mess that they leave behind goes on for generations, if not centuries, what they call tailings, which is the pollution that uh, is caused, you know, especially the gold mines, for every ounce of gold that they extract, tons and tons, literally tons and tons and tons of uh, rubble are left behind and uh, this rubble contains heavy metals and uh, results in acid, uh, you know, acidification of the rivers and uh, all kinds of destruction. Are there major rivers in the area that they're talking about? Yes, there are major rivers and they drain into the Amazon River itself. You know, those mines on that side of uh, the country uh, drain into the Amazon and uh, Los Cedros has a beautiful unspoiled uh, stream and we're determined to keep it that way. And this is a sort of a, a threat against the Amazon all over, isn't there? Well, there are all manner of threats to the Amazon. Ecuador is in the headwaters of the Amazon, so what happens in Ecuador, of course, goes downstream all the way to the ocean. But um, there are uh, oil spills taking place and, um, you know, all, all manner of development that's, uh, you know, um, Ecuador's striving to be part of the modern world with all that that entails. Well, what does that mean for the Constitution, or it's not worth the paper it's written on if they can override it in this fashion? Well, that's, uh, you know, that's one of the questions that we're asking, and uh, one of the possible, one of the things that we're exploring is the possibility of a, of a, uh, constitu- you know, a, a, a lawsuit that's based upon that Constitution, because 
giving rights to nature means that people uh, can stand up and take out a lawsuit on behalf of nature. So we're looking at the possibility and discussing with the Indigenous nations the possibility of a, a class action suit on behalf of all of those species that are going to be destroyed in all of those beautiful places. You're saying raising awareness. Surely there must be a, a fair degree of awareness already? Well, um, I guess it's like this country. It depends on what television channel you watch, you know. Yep. Um, not necessarily. What's the new government? Who, who's running that? A man called Moreno. And, uh, you know, he, you know, of course, what people say and what people do are entirely different things. But there was a, a march of Indigenous people, I think a 200-kilometre march, into the capital, Quito, and uh, to the presidential palace. And at that point, the president announced uh, that 2,000 of the concessions in indigenous territories would be annulled. So, you know, that's very hopeful because, uh, but, you know, of course, let's, uh, let's see if it happens because uh, if the constitution isn't worth the paper it's written on, what, uh, uh, you know, what is that promise worth? So, yes, it may depend upon how much pressure people within Ecuador are able to apply and also whether or not we can really let Ecuador know that the world is watching. So uh, one of the things that the Rainforest Information Centre is doing is a um, petition and so, you know, if people look up Rainforest Information Centre, uh, you'll quickly find our website and the petition. And we're also raising funds. We've raised about $25,000 so far towards the lawsuit and towards helping civil society uh, in Ecuador to uh, be able to, you know, create television advertisements and YouTube clips and all kinds of things to really try and uh, turn this into a, a, a national issue rather than just being, um, you know, something uh, that um, environmentalists are concerned about. How strong is the environmental movement in Ecuador? Well, I mean, I'd say it's probably as strong as it is in this country and, uh, you know, we don't seem to have been able to stop Adani yet or the uh, logging of our rainforest in the Tarkine or East Gippsland. So, you know, I mean, uh, that too remains to be seen. Uh, I'd say that, you know, obviously it's not over till it's over, but uh, I don't think there's any reason for complacency either in Ecuador or in Australia. And are the government doing this because of the, the debt levels that they've got? They're saying, well, we have to get money from somewhere and it's pretty easy to get it from mining companies. Is that the way it's going? Uh, it is. Um, uh, and in particular, the Chinese mining companies are very active and China loaned Ecuador billions and billions of dollars over the last uh, uh, recent time, you know, clearly this is on their minds. But on the other hand, you know, the corruption that, um, you know, as I said, the vice president's uh, got six years in jail for corruption. It wasn't uh, this particular issue of the mining companies. It was a different thing. However, he was also the same person that was in charge of the office that handed out these concessions. So I guess it's only a matter of time before uh, we find evidence that these mining concessions were also corruptly handed out and that there was uh, kickbacks from the mining companies to, um, uh, you know, to the people who... Um, who handed it out. So yes, the government as a whole thinks that uh, they may be able to dig themselves out of the financial mess that the, uh, the previous government created and there's also the individuals who uh, corruptly profit, you know, profited from such contracts. I would have thought that ecotourism would have been a way for the government to get some finance. 
we believe so. And, and of course, the government is getting finance from ecotourism in um, uh, the Amazon, uh, the Galapagos and, uh, and elsewhere. And we believe that this, along with bioprospecting, you know, the, the, you know, so much of medicines and industrial products is derived from molecules that we discover in these uh, species of plants and animals. And uh, this will surely continue as long as we don't destroy them before we have a chance to even, you know, find out what uh, treasures they contain. When were you last there, John? Oh, look, I haven't been there probably for 20 years and, you know, my work is much more sadly uh, desk-bound than uh, adventuring, but, you know, there are lots of young people heading over there. One of them, a uh, Melbourne man, David Nicastro, has made a fantastic film about Los Cedros, uh, which uh, people can see on that same... Um, a Rainforest Information Centre website, and he's also organising a uh, benefit for uh, Los Cedros and for the Ecuadorian Rainforest in Melbourne later this month on the 29th of April, and uh, I will send you um, uh, some details about where uh, people can go to find out more about that. Just finally, what are your memories that you brought back with you of that beautiful place? Can you still picture it in your mind? Well, yeah, I can. I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is an armadillo. And the second thing is the incredible chorus of howler monkeys that woke us up in the morning. And the third is the jaguar whose footprint I saw. And uh, thankfully, uh, I didn't run into them. And then there are the, the indigenous people that we uh, uh, spent some time with, the Warani and other indigenous nations. Uh, the Rainforest Information Centre was responsible for protecting millions of hectares of Ecuador back in the 1980s, and some of it with the help of the Australian government. We received uh, a substantial grant from AUSAID that helped to create the Los Cedros Biological Reserve. So we believe that uh, Australia should put pressure on Ecuador and uh, Greens Senator Lee Rhiannon has, uh, has helped us with letters both to Ecuador and to the Canadian government about their mining companies. And um, last week she did a, a speech in Parliament about the issue. But uh, we feel that the government as a whole should be making uh, representations because uh, uh, we've spent, I think it was close to $100,000 creating that reserve and uh, we shouldn't stand by idly while it's destroyed. No response yet from the government? No. no. <laughs> All right, John, your web page again, your information for people? Yeah, well, it's uh, rainforestinfo.org.au and rainforestinformationcentre.org. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you, Jan. And that indeed was John Seed from the Rainforest Information Centre. And the details of the film in the afternoon on the 29th of April is it's at Hope Street Arts Warehouse Space, which is 11A Hope Street in Brunswick. It's between 4 and 11pm on that day. Live music, live acoustic music, spoken word, the first ever Australian screening of the documentary Call of the Forests. There'll be talks about the campaign to save Ecuador's priceless rainforest from mining. Lots more, and you can sign a pledge and by just by being there, you're helping to in, toward the campaign to save the rainforests of Ecuador. So that, um, again, is Saturday the 29th of April, 
between 4 and 11pm at 11A Hope Street in Brunswick. Since gaining office in January 2017, President Trump in the US has appointed and dismissed many undesirables. But there is a great deal of concern at the appointment of John Bolton as the US National Security Advisor to begin on the 9th of April. To fill us in on the details of this man's activities over decades and more, I'm speaking with former politician and now political and social activist Joan Coxedge. Well, I want to talk about Trump's latest two senior appointments and they're both absolute shockers. First of all, John Bolton. He's been recently appointed as the new National Security Advisor and then the other horror head is Mike Pompeo and he is the new head of the US Department of State, recently ran the CIA. So bringing in these two neo-fascists in the current political climate is absolute madness and it's very clear that Trump is assembling a war cabinet and the current atmosphere in Washington has already been described as lethal, full-on with war fever. So you can imagine what the entry of these two creeps is going to mean. And Republicans and Democrats alike are pushing the same war barrow. So it's like a choice between arsenic and cyanide. And ironically, I don't think this has received a great deal of coverage, but Nobel Peace Prize winner Barack Obama is leading the charge. And Bolton, well, he's been described in many ways as the most hawkish man in America. I called him an unhinged thug, which I think is probably closer to the mark. But whenever there is a problem, war is always his answer. He totally rejects diplomacy. And it's a bit ironic when you look at his track record, because the closest he ever got to war, which wasn't very close at all, he previously served in the Maryland National Guard, and the U.S. Army Reserve towards the end of the Vietnam War. So, you know, he saw nothing at all of what war really means. He's got no understanding or wants to. And the story was that he used that time in, in the National Guard so he wouldn't have to be sent to Vietnam. Yeah. This is the supreme irony about people like that. Very happy to go to war as long as they're not in it themselves. It's disgraceful. And I've often said that if we had the olden times where the leaders in the community led the troops into war. I don't think we'd have as many, do you? But anyhow, so this individual, who's now the National Security Advisor, he totally has a total disdain for democracy or any semblance of it. And he first came to prominence during the George W. White House, and I think he was even earlier back than that, but we don't, don't know so much about him, but I think he was working with Ronald Reagan as well. But anyhow, he really came to prominence during the, the George W. era when he was hired as the Under Secretary of State in charge of arms control. <laughs> Can you imagine it? In charge of arms control. And he was managing U.S. diplomacy regarding weapons of mass destruction. And we know uh, what happened with that great lie. It led to the catastrophe of Iraq. But this is where he developed a serious reputation as a bully, a full-on bully, and uh, a serial abuser, a very, very nasty man indeed. So I could describe him as not only a total asshole, but he's also incredibly bright, which makes him even more dangerous. 
And, of course, he's obsessed with plans to destroy the Islamic Republic and he's repeatedly called for the obliteration of Iran during his regular appearances on Fox News. And Fox News itself, of course, is a a lovely conduit for the extreme right-wing views of people who go on it. And he was also the major player in persuading Trump to rip up the Iran nuclear deal. And he also earned a reputation for twisting intelligence and was actually rejected by the Republican-controlled Congress for the role of U.S. ambassador to the U.N., and it was that bad. You've only got to look at the current incumbent, and she's so far to the right, you know, she just about fell over. Even Warhawk Dick Cheney wanted him out. Now, that tells you something as well. Apparently Cheney didn't like his management style like that. And Bolton once threatened an international official who crossed him, and he said, we know where your kids live. A charmer, isn't he? So his rhetoric is so brutal and his behaviour so thuggish that he's frequently accused of behaving like a madman. So it really is time to sound the alarm, to panic, I think, because the the bullies have come together. What about his role or his opinion on Cuba? Well, bad. Absolutely bad. He would uh, set all the most military interventions against Cuba. I I haven't read so much recently about what he's saying about Cuba. I think he's more concentrating on the Middle East at the moment, but Cubans must be very well aware of the dangers that they face with a man like that in the position he's got, because he's only a couple of feet away from from the White House. So you've got Trump, who has no opinions of his own. He's all over the bloody place. He doesn't know what he's saying from one day to the next. So here's this man who's got very strong views sitting close by and you can imagine the influence that he's going to have on Trump. The only hope we have, Trump has a great track record of sacking everybody within about a couple of months. We can only hope that this um, awful John Bolton gets on his nerves so much that he gets fed up with him and gets rid of him. But at the moment, he's there, he's in situ, and he's very, very dangerous indeed. And there are a lot of people calling him a, a war criminal unless because of his role in Iraq. Absolutely. And, I mean, that was based on a deliberate lie. We know that. But then, you know, the war criminals, uh, Blair and our very own Howard, followed in and it's just a calamitous situation. It's been described now as just like an occupied nightmare, Iraq. Can't see it ever recovering. And Medea Benjamin, she's an American who's very highly regarded because the official figure varies a lot. At the maximum, it's often quoted, a million people died. And she said that's an understatement. It was in reality about two million plus that died. And that doesn't account for the total obliteration of its uh, culture and its whole existence, if you like. You destroy a country's culture, you destroy it completely. And that's what Bolton took part in with his dreadful pushing of the, you know, weapons of mass destruction. But then that whole group of neocons planned a long time ago to move in on the Middle East, and this is another manifestation of that. And it is a very, very worrying time indeed. And then, as I said, the number two nightmare is Mike Pompeo, and he's even more hawkish than Trump, so they make a damn good pair, he and Bolton. He's also a West Point graduate and former army officer and a former Tea Party rep, and we know the Tea Party, again, were of the extreme right of the Republican Party. So they've sort of just fallen off the the planet, really. And, of course, he's a very, very strong supporter of Israel, 
and he describes, uh, this is um, Pompeo, he describes Netanyahu as a true friend of the American people. This is a man who's a violent crook, and we know what's happened to the Palestinians in the last few days, a terrible massacre, and because they were just peacefully protesting. So it's a very worrying time indeed. It's almost grotesque, I think, the situation around the White House. It's a grotesque president surrounding himself with grotesque people, but what it does is put the world at huge risk. And you've been following these sort of issues for many, many years, Joan, and to say that this is the, the worst that you've seen... It really has to be. I, mean, I can remember Cold War One when we all thought we'd be blown to kingdom come, you know, and that was over the Cuban Missile Crisis, and things were pretty worrying at that time. But I think this this has got a coldness, a, a horror about it that was lacking then. That was like an acute situation seemed to resolve itself when uh, the Russians pulled back. Uh, I don't know what the Americans did at that in that situation. They seemed to be full on to stay in place and I don't think we would have got a peaceful outcome had the Russians not pulled back but at this stage you've got the frame up now taking place of of the Russians being blamed for the um, poisoning of the that's a contentious issue but I, I certainly don't believe it happened I think it's a put up job because no proof has been given at all and if they were really fair dinkum then they would be presenting evidence and they have not Theresa May the Prime Minister of Britain was deeply unpopular and of course she's riding now on the wave as if she's somehow you know, had a great victory for the West over Russia and there's no doubt that they're building up this enormous intense hatred of Russia and everything to do with Russia and Iran's caught up with that and we know what it's got to do with it's got to do with the value of the, of the, of the US dollar it's got to do with its declining power it's got to do with the total stuff-up of the West, which has totally failed to provide for ordinary people. And there's discontent right throughout the Western world with the way things are going. And you've got to have somebody to hate. And Russia's handy. It's out there. Well, you have to have someone to hate because your, your country runs on weapons and manufacturing right. weapons. That's huge. So if you're not using them yourself, you're selling them to someone else. Always got to have wars because I know they had a, a huge arms deal to Saudi Arabia recently. That was the United States and another one to Israel because that's one of the nightmares too. Everybody's so heavily armed with the latest, latest, most terrifying weaponry. And you'd only need a slip-up. You'd only need somebody who would uh, be a Dr. Strangelove and, you know, trigger off something before it could be stopped, you know, and then you have A following B and away we go. We just hope it doesn't happen. But it is very dangerous and you'd like to think Australia as a small power, which is all we are, could somehow act in a more positive way for peace. But no, we just jump on board everything that America wants. It doesn't matter how, as I said, grotesque their leadership is and how disgraceful their policies are. We're there. And we, God only knows what deals that uh, are done behind closed doors. We do know that we're getting more and more American troops here, stationed here. And, of course, when I'm talking about the dangerous situation, what would be in the middle of it all? Pine Gap, the most important American base outside the United States. And then you come to all sorts of other questions that you might like to look at later on and that is how why Whitlam got kicked out and who was behind that and it opens up many many doors you've only got to look at the 
the hypocrisy of blaming Russia for interfering in America's political system and you think, or their elections, and you think of the countries where the countries where the US, and you can include Australia in this, have interfered in the elections of other countries. Oh, God, yes. Well, look at Latin America. Well, actually, there's hardly anywhere in the world where they haven't interfered. Well, you've only got to look at Whitlam. You've only got to look at Whitlam, and that's detailed and great. And they're the friends. So-called friends, yes. But don't step out of line, friend, because if you do, we'll jump on you. Don't have a little tiny bit of independence, friend, because we don't care for that. You just have to do everything we want you to do and don't budge. And, I mean, a lot of people have forgotten their role in Greece way back when the colonels came and the Americans were right behind it. Hardly a country in the world where they haven't interfered if they don't care for the sort of uh, people that have got elected or who come through the ranks. And Latin America is now going through a very traumatic time. Have a look at Venezuela. And, uh, and Honduras, where they and supported Honduras, the coup. yes, indeed. I mean, and then you go to Iran, where the CIA orchestrated a coup when a leader came in there. In was it 1956, and they didn't care for the leader, independent, and uh, again mayhem ensued as a result of that interference. So they're experts at it, but they're not experts at the terrible outcomes that take place when they do interfere. And that was political and social activist Joan Coxidge speaking about some of the, the treasures in the Trump cabinet. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. On the 15th of March, activist councilwoman Marielle Franco and her driver were shot dead on Rio de Janeiro's north side around 9.30pm. The deaths have resulted in huge protests and an open letter by international activists, writers, journalists, filmmakers, politicians and actors calling for an investigation of the murders by an independent committee. I'm speaking with Debbie Brennan from the Freedom Socialist Party who attended a rally here in Melbourne recently organised by the local Brazilian community to protest the brutal assassination. Debbie, who was Marielle? Marielle Franco was a councillor on the City Council of Rio de Janeiro. She was the only black woman on that council, one of seven women of a council of 51. But she was more than this. She was a lesbian, a single mother, a socialist, a feminist. She was a very popularly elected councillor from the favelas of Rio, the favelas being the slums of Rio and Brazil generally. So she came from the bottom rungs of that society. She was popular because she was a fighter. She was a fighter for 
black people, black women, for LGBTIQ people, and people from the favelas. In Brazil, including Rio specifically, what's been happening over the last decades, especially the last few years, of um, an e economy absolutely plummeting, police repression of any kind of dissent or organizing in the streets has become absolutely brutal, and Mariel was very much a fighter against police repression. Was she threatened before this? I believe she probably would have been. I can't say whether she, she was exactly, but she certainly would have been fully aware of, you know, the risks involved with being a fighter of that massive dimension and of that influence among those, you know, the, the, the absolute impoverished who are the ones who are beaten down by the authorities and also being the voice of those who are not, not only beaten down but rising up. So, yes, she would have been threatened, I'm sure, and she would have been aware that um, her life would be in danger. Was there any particular happening in the last weeks or so before her death that would have precipitated whoever killed her to kill her? Yes. Before her assassination, that was on March 15th this year, about three weeks before, the national government of Michelle Temer, a right-wing government um, that came in undemocratically in December, had declared a militarization, a military occupation of Rio and specifically aimed at keeping the favelas in line. So what Rio was facing not long before the assassination of Marielle was a city, as I said, under military occupation with the checkpoints, with everything that's involved in it. So, yes, it was a pretty much a state of siege. And has that happened? The militarization, are they in place? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, and basically what that occupation, the, the context of all of that is that, well, basically the big capital, of, that is the capitalists of Brazil, of which um, Temer is a, clearly an uh, obedient servant, are very worried about basically revolt, uh, a popular revolt, because with the economy absolutely plummeting and being in crisis particularly over the last few years, there have been strikes, there have been massive protests in the streets, and in fact in 2013, just five years ago, Brazil was just absolutely erupting in revolt. So they certainly know that this is what can happen, re-erupt at any time, so that's what this occupation is about. I'm just wondering what the roundup happened with the Olympic Games too for the people yes, in the favelas. Exactly, and and that's exactly what occurred. That it was the roundup of the of the favelas. It was the crackdown, um, the brutal crackdown. And so when we when we talk about you know police 
in Brazil, as we're seeing the beginnings of here, we're talking about a militarized police. And in fact, the question arising, who actually assassinated Marielle and her driver, it's very clear that it was the state. Um, Brazilians are no doubt that it was the state that set out to kill her. The uh, Temer, of course, claims that it was organized crime that was the cause of her death, but in fact, those bullets that killed Marielle and, and her driver were ammunition that has been issued to the federal police and to the army. It's crystal clear. And this has all happened since he came to power, as many people say, he's there illegally. Yes, so like what had happened in December was that the Workers' Party at the time, headed by Dilma Rousseff, who succeeded Lula, the Workers' Party had become quite unpopular, particularly among the rich, because the Workers' Party refused to hand over the nationalized oil fields to, you know, the Exxons and the Chevrons and so on. But also they were becoming unpopular among the poor because the Workers' Party, which had been once very, very popular because of its um, very impressive um, social programs and funding for those programs, became unpopular because it also, because of the economic collapse, was implementing and enforcing terrible austerity measures. So what happened last December was that there were massive protests against Dilma Rousseff being very much aided and abetted by Wall Street and the U.S. government, and she was undemocratically impeached and removed, and Temer took her place, and Temer was never elected. So he's, an, he's the unelected president. Talk about the situation since the death of these two people. Imagine there was a great outpouring of rage and sadness. Very, very much. Millions hit the streets across Brazil, but not just across Brazil, but around the world. And in fact, here in Melbourne, the Brazilian community called a protest, and that's where radical women and Freedom Socialist Party, who I went along with, participated in that protest. And just to look at Melbourne alone, it was a very angry protest. Those protesting were very clear on who killed Marielle and what it was all about. So, yes, the outpouring of anger and grief was global. And I'm sure, given all of that, Rio would be on tinterhooks because that's certainly not going away. Those who have been ready to resist and have resisted all these years against the terrible austerity and against the terrible killing of people with impunity are going to just, this is, this is a catalyst for something more. So I would say that the Temer government would be quite worried right now. And when we talk about 
killing with impunity. Apparently, a black Brazilian person is killed, is murdered in Brazil every 23 minutes. And among the LGBTIQ community across Brazil, apparently the killings of LGBTIQ people is the highest in the world. So that polarization within Brazil, it, you, you can just see it. And sexism, homophobia, racism are alive and well and the result of a whole history. Has someone stepped up to take her place? I don't know the actual result of that, so um, I wouldn't be able to say. There was a very strong statement put out by revolutionary socialists. Yes, the statement that was put out was by the Committee for a Revolutionary International Regroupment, which I'll just refer to as CRIR. It's a regroupment of Trotskyist feminist revolutionaries of which the Freedom Socialist Party, both in the United States and Australia, are a part, but also organizations from Mexico and Argentina. And CRIR, which is really close to the thick of what happened in Brazil, came out promptly and very strongly in analyzing, giving a, an explanation around the assassination of Marielle and what, who did it and what this actually means. And the committee, the CRIR, came out with this powerful statement because CRIR is all about the building of, an inter, uh, of a revolutionary international. And so episodes such as this very significant assassination are seen as very critical for, and, a, and, a, and even more of a reason for that revolutionary international to build in all of our countries. And you'll be listening to Debbie Brennan from Freedom and Socialist Party here in Australia speaking about the murder of Mirella Franco and her driver, Anderson Gomez. And on Sunday the 8th of April, community activist Carlos Alexandra Piera was found murdered in Rio just two days after he spoke to investigators in the Mirella Mirel Franco murder case. So far, according to a report, the police have yet to officially confirm whether Pereira's murder is linked to the murders of Morel and Anderson, but also according to witnesses who discovered Pereira's body were told by several unidentified witnesses that before the shooting, one of the perpetrators shouted, enough, enough of this, we have to shut your mouth. The kin- killings continue, and as she said, of black people in Rio, it never stops.
Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Next, the rise of fascism. And this is a, another talk by Chris Gaffney, who was the secretary of the Victorian Labor College for 27 years and lectured in politics of the day and recorded these from a Marxist viewpoint. This one, as as I said, is the rise of fascism. The rise of fascism reversed suddenly the idea that human history was an inevitable progress. It was all the more shocking because it involved the direct brutality of physical violence against individuals. Historical and individual fate for millions of people became identical. Not only were social classes defeated, but survival for entire human groups became problematical. A scientific understanding of fashion is clearly a prerequisite for the successful combating of it. Nor is our understanding merely a reflective exercise, for the dominant theory of investigation will have the effect of boosting the self-confidence of particular social classes, while at the same time reducing their political and moral vulnerability to attacks from hostile social classes. Fascism was able to develop successfully because its real nature was not understood and because the dominant theory of the time was either false or incomplete. Fascism in Germany, Spain and Italy was not the work of any blind forces of fate inaccessible to action by people and social classes but rather as a product of economic, political and ideological relationships between the various social classes under capitalism. These are understandable and we are capable of understanding them. It follows, therefore, that phenomenon would have made the fight against fascism significantly easier. But theory alone is not enough. In order to get results, it must grip the masses. The bureaucracies that ruled the mass working class organisations were able to insulate the masses from an adequate theory of fascism and the use of a workable strategy that this included. For their mistakes, the bureaucrats suffered annihilation. But the price humanity paid was much higher. The Second World War left 16 million people dead. While study of the national form that fascism takes is relevant, it must be undertaken within a framework which has first determined whether the fascist dictatorship tends to maintain or destroy, consolidate or undermine the social institutions of private property in the means of production, and the subordination of workers who are forced to sell their labour power under the domination of capital. It's true that fragments of pre-capitalist, guild and semi-feudal ideologies of earlier times 
play a not insignificant role in the ideology of fascism and in the mass psychology of the declassed petty bourgeois that is the social base of fascist mass movements. But to proceed from this to suggest, as some do, that the character of fascism is, quote, the aggressiveness rooted in human nature, says nothing. For such aggression is expressed in countless different historical movements. Rather, fascism imposes on that aggressiveness a particular social, political and military form which has never existed before. Accordingly, fascism is indeed a product of imperialist monopoly capitalism. All attempts to interpret fascism in primarily psychological terms suffers from this fundamental weakness. Even less satisfactory is the view that sees fascism in terms of the characteristics of a particular people, or races, or of a particular historical past. How does one, for example, square the German military tradition with the complete absence of such a tradition in Italy? If hatred of the Jews is a primary feature of fascism, why were the Jews in Italy largely left alone by Mussolini? Again, Italy was industrially relatively backward country, whereas Germany was the most highly industrialised country in Europe. As secondary features and causes, these features have undoubtedly played a role in conferring upon fascism a specific national character, corresponding to the historical particularity of monopoly capitalism and of the petty bourgeoisie in each particular country. Fascism is a universal phenomenon which has roots in all imperious lands and can strike roots at any time. Attempts at explanation that emphasise this or that national peculiarity are wholly inadequate. The superiority of the Marxist method rests in its ability to successfully integrate contradictory elements which reflect a contradictory social reality. Adherence to Marxism, of course, doesn't guarantee a successful analysis, but it does make such an analysis possible. Trotsky's analysis of fascism can be broken into six elements, which must be understood in connection with one another. Let me detail these. Firstly, the rise of fascism is an expression of a severe social crisis of capitalism, a crisis of overproduction like the 1929-39 crisis, which goes beyond a temporary fluctuation of fortunes and goes to the relationship by which profit is realised. That is where capital cannot continue in the competitive world market with a given level of wages, labour productivity and access to raw materials and market. The function that fascism performs in this situation is to suddenly and violently change the conditions of the production and the realisation of profit to the advantage of decisive groups of monopoly capital. From 1924 to 1929, big business subsidises the fascist bands just enough to keep them from disappearing. They were not immediately required. They would be kept in reserve for a later date. And when the crisis of world capitalism blossomed into full force in 1929, the bourgeoisie began to turn more and more to the extra-parliamentary fascist gangs. But in both its infancy and until late in the peace, it was the heavy industrialists alone who subsidised and egged on the fascist movement, whereas light industry, or the Finnish goods industry, were never quite as enthusiastic about the fascists, and initially were hostile to them. 
This was for several reasons. Firstly, the organic composition of capital invested in heavy industry is much higher than in light industry. That is, the ratio of capital invested in plant raw materials to wages is much higher. This means that the range of profitability realised from the surplus value created by the workers is that much more limited, and strikes leading to loss of production mean losses mounting into millions. If the economic crisis sharpens, they are unable to cut their fixed costs and therefore can only reduce their wages bill. The light industrialists, with their lower ratio of capital to wages, were less vulnerable to short strikes. Furthermore, the fact that they produced goods primarily for consumption made them fear that a savage cutback on the wages bill would have a bad effect on the purchasing power of the masses. They therefore preferred industrial peace, whereas heavy industry wanted to pursue the class struggle until the workers and their organisations were crushed. For this to be achieved, a strong dictatorial state was required, a development that light industry feared. Whatever the difference in strategy, the commitment of fascism to capitalism can be seen in the growth of corporate wealth from profits of 6.6 billion marks from all industrial and commercial enterprises in 1933 to 15.5 billion marks in 1938. Further, by destroying the organised workers' movement, Hitler achieved a wage freeze that would be the envy of John Howard. Wages for the whole period of the Reich were below the pre-crisis level, even though there was a severe labour shortage. Furthermore, the share of capital, interest and profits that is, rose from 17.4 of the national income in 1932 to 25.2 in 1937 to 26.6 in 1938. However, the number of corporations sharing these profits declined. Fascism not only did not break down the development of monopoly capitalism, it established near-ideal conditions for its future growth and development, it assisted it further by direct state investments. Second, in the epoch of imperialism, state power is an important tool in the struggle for world markets. Where the workers' movement has gone through a long historical development, the bourgeoisie exercises its political rule most advantageously through the bourgeois parliaments, parliamentary democracy we call it, which can reduce social antagonisms by granting certain social reforms. Such reforms are granted usually by social democrat or labour governments, who are thereby able to confine working class aspirations within the framework of capitalist society. The bourgeoisie desire the social democrats only for so long as they retain a mass support in the working class and can actually perform this role. The bourgeois parliamentary system also allows an important section of the bourgeoisie to participate directly in the exercise of political power through bourgeois parties, newspapers, universities, employers' associations, local and state governments and the financial and industrial hierarchy. Far from being the only form of bourgeois rule, the parliamentary form depends upon the maintenance of a highly unstable equilibrium of social forces. 
When the bourgeoisie is unable to offer further minor concessions and feels compelled to attack working-class wages and conditions in order to maintain a falling rate of profit, and the social democrats can no longer contain working-class resistance, the bourgeoisie will try to establish a higher form of centralisation of the state's executive power, even to the stage where direct political rule by the bourgeoisie themselves is actually excluded. This is the function of fascism which it has only been able to perform by an extensive political expropriation of the bourgeoisie themselves from government. Thirdly, because of the numerical predominance of wage workers, it's nearly impossible for this violent centralisation of power to take place, much less the liquidation of most of the gains of the workers' movement, including, of course, the mass organisations of the working class. This, all these things can no longer be achieved within the framework of bourgeois parliamentary rule. Neither a military dictatorship nor a pure police state can for any length of time demoralise a class with millions of members, nor can these forms prevent for long the simple class struggles that are produced by market conditions. To be able to achieve its ends, the bourgeoisie needs a movement that can set masses of people on their side, that can wear down, isolate and demoralise the most aware parts of the working class by mass terror, street warfare, and that being done, can, after the seizure of power, totally crush the mass workers' organisations. The mass fascist bands then supervise and control the conscious wage workers. They can also ideologically influence the more backward workers, particularly the white-collar workers. Four. Such a mass movement can only rise on the basis of the petty bourgeois, a class situated between the working class and the bourgeoisie. The workers see their enemies in the plant, but the small trader, the shopkeeper and the small farmer see themselves as the victim of both big business and the unions. Their grievances are not against a definite enemy, but generalised and negative. They're therefore open to demagogy that uses radical and often anti-capitalist rhetoric. If a petty bourgeois is hard hit by inflation, bankruptcy of small firms, mass unemployment of university graduates, young workers thrown out of work, and in 1932 a third of the unemployed were under 24, technicians and the higher salaried employees falling into disrepair, then there's typically petty bourgeois movement with its ideological reminiscences and psychological resentment will arise. It will combine extreme nationalism, verbal anti-capitalist rhetoric, directed not against private property as such, but against particular forms of capitalism, ones that affect them directly, such as money lenders, banks and department stores. They are easy prey to a scapegoat mentality. And in Germany this was the Jews who were an assimilated minority of 1% of the population. After the First World War, refugees from the Baltic areas added fuel to the preoccupation of Hitler and the fascist gangs. Add to this an intense hatred of the organised workers' movement, particularly as many of these leaders were of Jewish background. Once this movement begins physical attacks on the workers' movement, a fascist movement is born. Once it, is, it has reached a certain level on its own, it needs the financial and political support of important sectors of monopoly capitalism, particularly the decisive heavy industry, 
if it's to carry through to the seizure of power. 5. Before the fascist dictatorship can fulfil its role, the workers' movement must be ground down and beaten back before the seizure of power. This is only possible if, prior to the seizure of power, the scales have been tipped decisively in favour of the fascist bands and against the working class. The bourgeoisie, to quote Trotsky, likes fascism as little as a man with aching molars likes to have his teeth pulled. End of quote. Because the option of fascism creates the situation of all-or-nothing politics. If the fascists succeed in smashing the organised workers' movement, then it will succeed. But if the workers' movement seizes the initiative and strikes back, then it can defeat not only the fascists, but the capitalist system that spawns it. At first, the fascists organise only the most desperate parts of the petty bourgeois, while the petty bourgeois masses and the unorganised part of the wage workers, the unemployed, the young workers, waver backwards and forth between the two camps. They will follow the side that shows the greatest boldness and decisiveness. If the working class is unable to resolve this structural crisis of capitalism in its own interest, that is, if it does not seize the chance of a victory because it is split, misled or demoralised, then fascism will triumph. 6. If fascism succeeds, quote, like a battering ram in smashing the workers' movement, end of quote, then it has served its purpose so far as monopoly capitalism is concerned. Its mass movement is bureaucratised and largely absorbed into the state apparatus. The most extreme sections of the plebeian petty bourgeois, these people now represent an obstacle to this assimilation, and in Germany they were ruthlessly eliminated in the Night of the Long Knives in 1934. With them, the verbal anti-capitalism is finally buried. The centralised state apparatus becomes more and more independent of the party ranks and the all-or-nothing politics of fascism are carried over from the social-political sphere into the financial sphere. It encourages permanent inflation and finally allows no alternative but foreign military adventure. This produces a worsening in the economic situation and in the political position of the petty bourgeois. A pronounced acceleration in the concentration of capital and in the proletarianisation of the middle classes. We see that the class character of the fascist dictatorship does not correspond to the fascist mass movements. The dictatorship represents the interest of monopoly capitalism, not those of the petty bourgeois. This of necessity shrinks the active mass base of fascism, and the greatly reduced fascist bands lose their independence and become appendages of the police. Fascism is transformed back into a particular kind of bonapartism, that is, dictatorship without the mass petty bourgeois base that distinguishes fascism. This is based on many of the ideas contained in Ernest Mandel's introduction to Trotsky's writings on Germany. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for his talk, Rise of Fascism. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986, 
and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay in a chicken strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Brunswick short film competition is on again this April. Come and see the entries all competing for $5,000 in prize money in Sydney Road open category and music videos along with highlights from previous years. Screening at Sydney Road venues, Biff Tannen's Bar on the 24th and Barclay Square Laneway on the 19th with the final and winners announced at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute on Friday April 27th at 7pm. Free entry and just a $5 donation for the final night. For more info, head to sydneyroad.com.au. The Sydney Road Brunswick Short Film Competition is a 3CR supporter. In the guise of protecting Australian politics from foreign interference, the Federal Government has introduced new bills into Parliament that threaten to frustrate the work of human rights, environmental women's, international aid and social justice NGOs and charities. The one we're looking at today is the Electoral Legislation Amendment, Electoral Funding and Disclosure Reform Bill 2017. One of those groups who will be directly affected by this bill, if it passes, is Friends of the Earth, who have in the past been seen as a threat to Conservative governments. I'm speaking with Campaign Director Cam Walker from FOE. Can you explain what is in this bill, Cam? There's three sets of bills which are ostensibly around ensuring that we remove the external influence on Australian politics, but in the real world, in the way they've been crafted, they're really an attempt to break the voice of progressive voices in civil society. In what way? The key thing is they will limit our ability to attract funds. And to understand this, you have to go backstream or upriver quite a way. And it takes you to the Institute of Public Affairs. They've been driving this campaign for a very long time. And they've sought to, A, remove federal and state government funding to environmental groups and other social justice organisations. The second stage in that campaign has been to take our tax status. And the third stage is to limit what we can and can't talk on. And in regards to this, it will make it very hard for us to take any funds from overseas, but it will also make it quite difficult even to solicit funds locally from individual members of the community. What funds would you be getting from overseas? So we apply for philanthropic funds, and some of them are based in the United States. And in the past, for instance, our coal and gas campaign has been funded by some US-based funders. We're quite transparent about that in our annual reports. We say where our money comes from. Across the board, though, um, we're part of an international network. We're in 70 countries. We do actually work across borders. For instance, we have a Friends of the Earth International campaigner on corporate power who's based here in, in Melbourne, obviously those funds for his wage come uh, internationally so they come out of Amsterdam so it's, it will clamp down on those simple movements it's essential we're able to operate globally 
But the fine print in this detail is not only that it will remove our ability to seek funds from overseas, but there's a really troubling precedent, which is that in real time we have to track the donations that everyone gives us. So say if you as a a person in Melbourne was giving us about $5 a week, once that got over the $250 per year limit, we would need to come back to you and say we need you to sign a statutory declaration to make sure that you are indeed a resident of a Australia and hence eligible to give us this donation. Now, a group like us that relies on hundreds and hundreds of people giving us small chunks of money, you actually can't do that. And if you think about it, I I donate to groups. If they come back to me and say, I need you to go to the police station and get, you know, a stat deck, who's going to do it? So there'll be a massive fall off of funding because this government, which ostensibly likes to cut red tape, is putting a vast amount of red tape on the the management of our finances. So limiting some options from overseas, but also making our reporting requirements here in Australia for Australian-raised money pretty much onerous and unworkable. Can you just explain a bit further how they're going to limit the money you're getting the money from overseas, what can they do? Well, they'll just outright ban our ability to have funds come in from overseas. So in our audits, we would be responsible for identifying the source of all funds and if there were any funding that was deemed or or actually was sourced from North America, that would in effect be illegal. So it it adds the need for us to identify a financial controller to our organisation. We obviously have a finance coordinator who would be basically criminally responsible and would be you know, punished if we did inadvertently accept funds from the United States under this new system. So it, it carries with it quite considerable criminal punishment. So that, of course, will make everyone very nervous. So we just by definition will not seek any funds from overseas. And so that will cut off that option for funding. How wide is the net that they've put out? This covers basically all charities. So um, any group that engages in Advocacy, that is a listed charity, and that's, you know, the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence through to Oxfam, through to World Vision, through to Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace. It will cover all of us, and it will limit all of us. And, of course, many of the large charities are international organisations like us, so they, you know, they deal in kind of multiple countries and they're moving funds around. So it will impact uh, very, very seriously on us. And, in fact, some legal advice that was received recently said that, quote, this poses an existential threat to advocacy by charities in Australia. So it's being taken very, very seriously. Does it also limit the things that you can do with the money when you've got it? So this is part of... the a longer-running campaign, which is to rein in our ability to do advocacy. So part of this long-running campaign that goes back about five years uh, was the House of Representatives inquiry into the tax status of green groups that was created by the coalition, was controlled by the coalition, and it sought to make sure that groups like Friends of the Earth could only do a very small amount of advocacy and, in effect, would force us to plant trees and do ecological restoration one figure from one of the Minerals Council's groups was we would need to spend up to 50% of our income on ecological remediation. Now, anyone that's paying attention knows that there's lots of great groups out there like Landcare, like Greening Australia, that are already doing that work, and it's excellent work, and it's necessary work, but in this day and age we also need advocacy. So it was an attempt basically to take away the teeth of advocacy groups and force us to do, basically to replicate work that's already underway. Can they silence you on issues like speaking out against conditions of refugees, 
homelessness, can they do that? Certainly they can. So um, we need to be operating according to our primary purpose and our primary purpose as an environmental group is protection of the natural environment. We're also a social justice organisation that have opinions on a range of things including asylum seekers and refugees. But there is the danger that if we continue to speak on those issues we could be challenged and we could be deemed to be at odds with our primary purpose. So there's clearly a political attempt to rein in what civil society groups are able to speak on and the reason it's happening now and they've pursued this for many years but we're kind of in the end game of this where these three pieces of legislation are likely to come back into federal parliament by June this year. The reason they're pursuing it now with such vigour is partly because the campaign against the Adani coal mine in Queensland is so powerful and at such an important time uh, in that particular campaign. And the fact is, this is tying up resources. You know, I'm talking about this now rather than talking about campaigning. I'm spending time back in the office, as is our finance people, as is our committee of management, worrying about this and thinking about what might come and advocating against it. So it's chewed up hundreds and hundreds probably thousands of hours across the groups thus far and that's clearly part of the purpose of this. It's to make us feel nervous, it's to make us behave ourselves and it's also to chew up our time so we actually can't be out there pursuing the protection of the natural environment which is after all our primary purpose. Are other groups like charities, are they speaking out or have they been silenced about this? Absolutely, they are. And I've actually been really impressed by this. I think maybe about three or four months ago, you know, the light bulb went on over the heads of the movement as a whole. And we went, gosh, this is actually getting really serious. You know, right across to the Fred Hollows Foundation, you know, they're worried about it. Like everyone is concerned about this. We realise that if they're able to get this through, it will be a reforming of the charity sector, basically in the view of very conservative, if not far right coalition MPs and we all get that that's not healthy for a civil society. Groups need to be able to advocate without fear or favour, particularly those groups like us that are non-aligned with political parties. And part of the detail of this would be if we spend money on election campaigns, that is trying to get issues into the public domain during an election cycle, we could be forced to register as a political entity, which would imply that we're aligned with a party. And that impacts on our reputation because a big part of our reputation is we are actually independent. We work with everyone amongst the political parties where we can, but we are independent of them. And so that will actually impact on the reputation across the board, I think, of the charity sector and particularly of the environmental groups that are active in this space. Are they still attacking your tax deductibility status? Thankfully we haven't had an investigation for a while. We've been through three audits now and they've all resulted from media stories against us. Unfortunately there are aspects of the Murdoch press that continue to run this narrative that you know green groups need to lose their tax status and that's been prosecuted obviously by people in the federal government such as Matthew Canavan uh, and George Christensen and Erica Betts who are very well known you know far right ideologues. We uh, haven't been particularly targeted in the last little while but I am aware of other groups that are currently being audited or investigated. What's the Labor Party and the other parties doing about this bills, these bills? So the Greens got it early on, which was great. The ALP uh, were uncertain about their position and they've really strengthened their position in the last month or so and are saying this 
bill and these broader bills, so we're mostly talking about what's called the Electoral Legislation Amendment Funding, also the Foreign Donations Bill. This is the, the main one we're concentrating on. They weren't quite sure about opposing it. Now they're very strongly that they will oppose it. Why have they got three bills? So two are ostensibly more around national security, so foreign actors influencing uh, Australian politics. And, of course, part of the recent genesis of this was Chinese donations into Australia. That's ostensibly the arguments that use, but what they're trying to do is capture all the activist groups up in, in that. But the, the one that's dominating the conversation is this foreign donation bill one. And thankfully the ALP now have a very strong position of opposing it. And an increasing number of people on the crossbench also realise that it's really not going to be a good look to basically limit what civil society can speak on and how they can speak. So hopefully the legislation won't get through. The, the government's made one attempt back in March to to proceed with this. Our understanding is that they will proceed again in June but at this point it doesn't look like they have the numbers but of course you can't trust that that will be the way it is and there's a lot more lobby work to be done yet. Are you saying that it's already gone to the Senate? They've put it into the House of Reps and they're not proceeding at this point because there was a, a joint standing committee uh, that was yet to report back and they reported back last week. So there's kind of multiple wheels in motion here but I think that now the government in coming weeks will decide how they're going to proceed. Are they going to amend the existing legislation or are they going to basically redraft the legislation and that's the preferred option by the charity sector and then will it resurface in May to be heard or considered in uh, federal parliament, I assume both houses in the June sitting. They can't get this through by regulation rather than legislation, can they? Unfortunately there is a way they can uh, go after groups like us. We as a DGR, Deductible Gift Recipient Status uh, Environmental Organisation, we're listed on a thing called the REO, the Register of Environmental Organisations, which is administered by the Federal Environment Minister. He could choose to amend the guidelines governing groups on the REO. I think they're keeping that one up their sleeves uh, because it would be seen as being very arbitrary and very draconian if they did actually amend the REO guidelines to exclude groups like Friends of the Earth or Wilderness Society or ACF or so on. Finally, Cam, what are you asking your supporters to do? Pay attention to this. This is really, really serious. If they are able to get the legislation through, it will have an enormous impact on our finances and hence our ability to campaign. In the next couple of months, we're doing communications with all our members. So if you could have a look at the Friends of the Earth Australia website, you'll see a story called Here We Go Again, which is basically the, the last five years of this story and the, the current incarnation of it. Start paying attention because if and when the legislation does come back and if they proceed in the current form, we are going to need all hands on deck in terms of pushing back and opposing this. We recently had something like 160 organisations sign on to a joint letter opposing the legislation in the current form. There's clearly concern out there, but we also need our members and supporters to be paying attention on this one. So your website? foe.org.au. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Jan. And of course, is Cam Walker, the campaign director of Friends of the Earth. Here's another way you can assist. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. 
This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Yesterday I spoke with Dr. Tim Anderson, recently returned from visits to Timor-Leste and Palestine, But I asked him first about Syria, and there were two questions I asked him first. How credible was the nerve gas attack, and who benefited from it, if it did happen? Yes, it seems like it did, and unfortunately, it's pretty much the same as all of the major stunts, provocations, let's say, over the last five years. That is to say, the Islamists, the jihadists, who are backed by NATO and the Saudis, have murdered some of their hostages to present a provocation, usually with a relatively small amount of people. Remember, there's real military use of chemical weapons. It's usually against hundreds and thousands of people, like uh, Saddam Hussein used against Iranian troops and Kurds back during the Iran-Iraq war. All of the provocations that the jihadists have used in Syria have been relatively small and militarily insignificant, basically, but they've attracted a lot of attention and that's what they wanted, of course. This is really a last stand by the Jaish al-Islam, the one remaining group in the East Scooter in, in the Duma city. And it's accompanied by the release of dozens of other hostages. Um, that, that's, there's big celebrations in Damascus at the moment because despite the murders involved in that incident, there's buses of people coming out now because there are ongoing surrender discussions still with that jihadist group. What's this got to do with the fact that Trump said he's going to pull the troops out of Syria. not clear what Trump's about flip-flopping on, on this issue. Um, of course, saying he's going to pull the troops out is indeed consistent with what he said before he was elected. Then, as we know, the deep state got its claws into him and somehow he can't seem to do anything particularly independent over this. But um, certainly he's responding to the pressures as he was last year, recall, when there was a, a chemical weapons false flag in Kun in a part of um, Idlib in the north and Trump sent a missile strike into a, an air base in, in Syria. It didn't actually do very much. It did kill some people in the surrounding village and uh, destroyed some aircraft, but it didn't do much militarily of, of any sort at that time. So there's a type of um, tokenistic sort of aggression going on here from Trump and it's not really clear which way he, he's going to jump. But, of course, having said that, the Syrians, the Russians, the Iranians are on a high alert uh, as a result of the, the comments that Trump's been making. The other thing I'm thinking about is that the meeting of Iran, Turkey and Russia, meeting at a high level to try and sort out the, the situation in Syria. United States not invited? No, from the beginning they haven't been invited. They were actually invited to come along as an observer, but they weren't invited to take part, and that was some sort of affront to their dignity because the United States always believes that it's the exceptional nation and has to be leading things. In this case, what's very important is three large regional powers, Iran, Turkey and Russia, are having those talks by themselves. It's important diplomatically because there's no relationship at the moment between Ankara and Damascus because the Syrian president thinks Erdogan is a, is a lunatic, is insane, basically. But the Iranians and the, um, and the Russians are sort of bridging that diplomatic gap there because it is true that in the long run, 
Syria has to have some sort of working relationship with its largest neighbour, which is Turkey. They have achieved some things. People, of course, in Syria don't trust uh, Mr Erdogan in Turkey, but they've achieved some agreements in principle and there is some sort of working relationship there, which is, uh, as I said, it's important because there has to be some agreement. Most of the jihadists that have come from outside Syria have come precisely come across that border of Turkey. And at the moment, as you know, there's ongoing fighting because the Turks have invaded Idlib to uh, attack the what they see as a base for the PKK, the Turkish-Kurdish separatists who have set up bases in the north of Syria. This is moving on to year eight, or it has moved on to year eight now. You wonder how the people of Syria are coping, even though they mightn't be right in the battlefield. It must be disrupting every aspect of life. It's extraordinary, isn't it, for a small country uh, with so much pressure over so many years, and it's survived, really. The, the state hasn't been smashed in the way that the state in Iraq was smashed. There is, I, I know from having been in Iraq last year, there's a very different sort of culture, a very different mentality there, uh, a view of the world because of the fact that they've defended their, their society, they've defended their system, they've kept their schools and their hospitals going under tremendous pressure with terrible carnage going on around them and, of course, millions of people leaving the country. But Syria is still standing. It's a small country. It's had the US, Britain, France, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Israel against them, and they've they've been rolling it back steadily for the last the last three years with the help of their friends, of course, Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, Iraq. Now there's a good relationship with Iraq between Iraq, Iran, and Syria too. And you've got to look at the West's looking toward Iran in the future. Well, there's a division over that, isn't there? Because there was a big consensus against Iran. 15 years ago that they were somehow a big threat in the region. It was them, not Israel, and that suited Israel very much. But um, eventually they came to that sort of agreement three years ago, and the Europeans took it seriously. Of course, Russia and China have since changed their approach to Iran quite substantially in any case. But the U.S. is holding out. Basically, doesn't like the idea, and Israel certainly doesn't like the idea of a big independent state there, which is supporting the resistance in Lebanon, supporting the resistance in Palestine, supporting Syria. They're not happy with that at all. But it's much harder for Trump to do anything in Washington or any U.S. president to do anything because, what did they say, the horse is bolted. You know, the stable doors are open. France, for example, although they're being loyal NATO allies um, over Syria, but they have significant investments now in the last few years. Um, some of the car companies have gone in, for example. There's a there's a few billion dollars of French investment in Iran, so they're defending that deal. So there's very limited room for Trump or U.S. administration to really turn it around. And Iran now is in actually the strongest position it's been for, for many decades. And where does this lead Israel? Paranoid, basically, because they didn't want to see, and, the, and they've made it clear on a number of occasions, they don't want to see those terrorist groups destroyed by serious Syria coming out stronger out of the mix because they know uh, that they're going to be confronted by a stronger Syria backed by Iran, backed by Hezbollah on the border of the Jolan Heights, which is illegally occupied by Israel. And there's no, and in international law, everyone supports that. No one really supports Israel in international law over the Jolan Heights. So when the Syrian president says we will liberate every inch of Syria, 
Of course, he does mean those areas currently occupied by Turkey and the US, although they'd prefer not to have direct confrontation with those big states. He also means um, the Jolan Heights, and everyone in Syria is very aware of that, that uh, and Israel's very aware of it. Israel, of course, has had some limits placed on it in the past, in the south, with the, the withdrawal from Gaza, in the, and that was pressured by the Palestinian resistance. They've also suffered that defeat 12 years ago in South Lebanon, and, and that's put limits on the Greater Israel Project. If Syria were to move in to reclaim the Jolan Heights, then the expansionists, at least in Israel, would be, would be very worried, very upset. You're talking about Israel withdrawing from Gaza, but what we've got in Gaza since then is an open prison for the people who are slowly dying. It's not just Gaza. The whole of the West Bank, Mm. I was in the West Bank in February, it's all completely choked with fences and and colonies and uh, walls, not just the wall, the separation wall with 48 Palestine and Jerusalem, but the whole of the West Bank is, is slowly grinding to a halt, it seems to me. The whole of Palestine is a, an incredible phenomenon which is just unsustainable, basically. Yes, it's, it's true that Gaza is in terrible, living in terrible conditions, but we have to acknowledge that it was a victory for the Palestinian resistance to kick out the colonies that existed in Gaza there before. And the, the then leader of Israel, uh, Ariel Sharon, said at the time that they had to withdraw from Gaza uh, for their own security. So let's remember that was also placing limits on the expansion of the, the Zionist state. Where did you travel in West Bank? As much as I could through the West Bank. It's not a very big area, but you have to go in. Well, the, the easiest way is to go in is from the Jordan side, across the Jordan River. And uh, Israelis basically behave as though they already own everything. The border control is by Israeli officials. They don't want to hear that you're going to the Arab cities. They, they want to hear that you're going to Israel. Uh, and there is some sort of strange sense of normality in the big Palestinian cities, Ramallah, Nablus, Hebron, um, even Bethlehem. But um, it's, a, it's a strange sort of normality because all around those cities there are colonies and the colonies consume land and the, and the roads and the buffer zones consume land and so on. So sometimes it can be very difficult just travelling around there too and even more strange to me was uh, Jerusalem which is a mixed area and in fact it's got a very large Arab population but um, massive tourism and so on but it's choked with armed troops and uh, the areas are blocked off repeatedly there are tensions with people going into the, the, the Muslim quarter there are tensions with people in the Christian quarter there's disputes um, over the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there so it's a very it's a very strange place, and Israel is already behaving as though they, they own the entire place and, and Palestine does not exist. Do you speak to many young people, maybe teenagers, and how they feel about what their future is going to be and whether they're willing to just sit back and let it happen? Yes, I, I did, and uh, in, in particular, one thing I discovered, which I'd read about but I wasn't really, hadn't really seen in any detail, was that the... There's these um, places called the camps, which are not really camps. They're like suburbs of, they're satellite suburbs of the major cities. But they are, well, they were refugee camps where people went after 1948. And there's now several generations of people who have grown up in those camps. And the young people in those camps are the most highly motivated of all of the, the Palestinian population, in the West Bank at least. That is to say, they don't have, well, 
what one young man said to me. We don't have any privacy. We don't have any property. But we cooperate together. We have a very strong sense of cooperating together. But they're ruthlessly repressed by the Israeli troops that come in at any time. They, this one camp, Dehesha, outside Bethlehem, for example, the Israeli troops would come in, usually looking for someone to, to question, sometimes just for training exercises. But they would, well, there was one library group, for example, a reading group that they had, which was disintegrated within a matter of months because nine of them were arrested, nine of them were in jail. One just got released yesterday, I saw. One was killed. And so I was talking to this young man who was the only really relatively at liberty person of that group that remained. So they'd also been had a policy of deliberately kneecapping young men in the camps or in the southern part of the, the southern part of the West Bank in the camps around Bethlehem and around Hebron. They've um, shot in the legs and the knees more than 200 young Palestinian men just in the last two years there uh, as a means of just trying to incapacitate them so that they can't be involved in any sort of resistance activities, whether it's any sort of resistance activity. There is resistance activity, including armed activity, going on virtually every day, that is to say sniping and but demonstrations also. So there's a constant sense of tension there. It's not really improving at all. And we remember what happened to the young soccer players who wanted to come to Australia. They got shot in the feet so that they'd never play soccer again or ever walk again. Yes, well, well, indeed, there's there apparently more than 200 of them in the, in the southern part of the West Bank as a result of the practice of this captain who's announced it very openly to the, to the young men. There are pictures of dozens of them there in wheelchairs and with their, their legs in, in braces, you know, plastered up from, the, from those injuries. It's an appalling thing. There was some publicity about it about 18 months ago and then everyone's forgotten about it. But they announced these sorts of things openly. There's an extremely crude, open, genocidal dialogue going on from the Israeli side at the moment and unfortunately there's quite a strong support from, I don't know whether it's majority support, but a very strong support from within the Jewish population in Israel. Do you talk to the parents, the families of these young men and how they're coping with life? with their young young men being mutilated like this? There's a constant mobilisation in in Palestinian society. I mean, it it cuts across completely. This is, I suppose, one reason why you've got this mobilisation in the the Zionist Israeli society too. They 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 are quite open about carrying signs saying, kill them all, we have to kill them all every day, we have to keep killing them and killing them and killing them. it's It's an appalling fascist type of dialogue going on because... Palestinian society is mobilised to a very large degree. They're all against the state of Israel. They're all against the occupation. And so, of course, that's expressed in lots of different ways. You know, it's expressed, you know, mostly passively because any sort of armed resistance, of course, is repressed ruthlessly. But even the, the stone throwers and the people that, you know, that had Tamimis who engage in relatively mild sort of resistance when someone infringes on their home, we've seen what happens to them. And she's now in jail. She and and many members of her family are in jail and her mother are in jail and I think a number of people in that family have been killed too. You know, they're not unique, you know. Most families are affected in some way like that. Land Day coming up, are there expected to be more demonstrations in the West Bank? Yes, well, that was that's what, what, what the um, protests on the Gaza border were about, isn't mm. it? They were burning tyres there because the Israelis were throwing in tear gas and including using drones to, to tear gas them there. So it's a, a very difficult 
situation to see what was going on. But there were, again, there was these uh, repeat demonstrations inside Israel, effectively celebrating the murder of the of the young people in those demonstrations. Clearly, unarmed people, and clearly, you know, on the other side of the of the, the fence there. But nevertheless, what, what was it? Seventeen killed, many, many injured, and uh, with Israelis cheering us, an appalling type of mass fascism that's going on there. And I think there's a very strong reaction going on around the world against it. It's not enough, though, is it? It's not enough, but um, these are very slow processes going on, aren't they? I mean, Palestine has been uh, edging its way into the United Nations and Israel has been edging its way out. Israel left UNESCO. Israel and the US are talking about pulling out of other UN organisations. So there is definite movement, although it seems glacial. Uh, it's an appalling situation, you know, but it's, it's, it just seems to me, having, having seen it firsthand there too, that it's remarkably unsustainable. You know, the West Bank itself just cannot really function. You know, there's, with the racial laws, the permits for people to move around, the checkpoints, all of the, the fences are multiplying. I mean, there are more walls and fences inside the West Bank than there are of that separation war, which we hear so much about, basically. The, the place is grinding to a halt, it seems to me. And shrinking. The area that the Palestinians have, every major city, if you look at Nablus or Ramallah, for example, they both have about five or six colonies on the hills around them. Then within those cities, there are 1948, 1950 refugee camps within those cities where there's a lot of overt resistance energy coming from. So there are, there are raids, I won't say every night, but several nights a week, particularly into those camps around Nablus and, and Hebron and, and Ramallah, basically. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary sort of maelstrom going on there. And thanks to Dr Tim Anderson. And on the program next week, I'll be talking to Tim about his time in Timor-Leste. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Before I go, just a acknowledgement that I made an error about the call to the forests meeting. It's Sunday the 29th of April, not Saturday between 4pm and 11pm for music, spoken word, information and the documentary Call of the Forest. That's Sunday the 29th of April, 4 to 11pm at 11a Hope Street in Brunswick. It's to support funds to help save the the rainforests in Ecuador. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4, but do stay tuned for Done by Law up in just a couple of minutes and we'll go out with Ruby Hunter. Bye for now.